I do is defend people accused of drunk driving. They're surprised to hear me say this, but I think the only fair way to actually um, execute the law would be to have it be zero tolerance because at least then you know that if you drink and drive, you're in violation of the law. The way it's set up now, if you drink after you've been drinking at the at the game or at the bar, wherever it is, you sit down and you think to yourself, you know what, I feel okay. And then you, try, you, you think you're okay. You don't want to violate the law. And then you get into the car and, and without any intent on your part, find yourself in violation of the law. So what we've done is we've put up a system where it's lawful to drink and drive, but the, but the, the substance that you're consuming interferes with your ability to determine whether or not the substance has actually impaired that ability. Hmm. So you're setting up people to fail. Literally. That's my view. And then charging them an astronomical amount of money for yeah, it. I kind of Absolutely. agree with you. We're running out of time now, Patrick. This I want to thank you. Uh, We've been talking to Patrick Barone. He's the principal and founding member of the Barone Defense Firm in Birmingham, Michigan. You can reach him at ptbarone, B-A-R-O-N-E, at mid3.net. Two four eight five nine four four five five zero. Thank you so much, Patrick. You're Thank very you for welcome. your time today. And I want to I want to hey, yeah. agree with you that marijuana is in a very different category. It is in the category of love. Wow, man. Love is the answer. <laughs> hey, let me give you let me give you my uh, eight hundred number. Eight hundred dial DUI. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Renegade Solutions is a White Buffalo Woman production. It is engineered by Carl the Man with the great goatee for Ali Transway Bratton. I'm Charmy Golson. I want to just remind y'all, it means to just love one another. Yeah. Love and peace, bro. Pandora's box, a box of chocolates Would I know To stay away What's there? Pandora's box, a box of chocolates Would I eat them anyway? Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you, babe That means I have half a mind to stay Good evening, it's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Mike, and Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food every Thursday at 6.30. And I have a guest in the studio, Todd, hello. Hello, Mike. This is Todd Wickstrom, and you've been on the show before in, in a number of capacities. Yes, sir. And I'd like to talk to, you some of the thing, talk to you about some of the things you've been involved in lately, because I think this is of interest to people listening. For one thing, you're on what's called the Michigan Food Policy Council. I am. I am. The Food Policy Council was uh, was an, uh, an initiative put together by the governor to bring together a lot of professionals in the food industry, people from uh, you know the unions and grocery stores to people that are involved in sustainable agriculture to 
people that are involved with the uh, Michigan Department of Agriculture. I mean, every, you know, really a very significant group. I think there's about um, a dozen, maybe 15 of us that are on the board. And the idea is to really focus on the state. You know, Michigan, um, most people don't realize it, but Michigan, you know, is second only to California in agricultural diversity. So there's a lot going on in the state. And, and especially as as a peninsula, we have a lot of really uniqueness, uh, you know, that a lot of people take for granted. And, and uh, in fact, we have more shoreline, you know, than any other state, especially if you count the UP, so more than Florida, more than California. That's true. And so all of those things, um, you know, add up to, you know, to a, a, an amazing resource um, that we really haven't been uh, focused on as a state for a long time. And what we want to try to do is to really, you know, we're looking at a bunch of different areas, but how do we really increase access to uh, fresh and healthy foods for people in the inner city? You know, some of the issues that we're dealing with are, you know, for example, there's the federal school lunch program. And the federal school lunch program um sort of comes to a stop in the summer, but there's a lot of kids that are, you know, rely on that meal for right. their sustenance. I mean, that's how they eat. And so what we're trying to do is to figure out how do we get more uh, healthy food into the schools and how do you do that year round? And the problem is like with the federal program right now, if your school district doesn't happen to have at least 50% of the kids there on free or reduced lunch, you can't participate in the summer lunch program. Oh, okay. So if you only have 40% of your students that are there... On only 40%. Lunch, that's a lot of students. Yeah, but. it's a lot of students. I mean, imagine even if there was just 100 kids, that's still 40 kids there that don't get to eat. Mm. Um, and so then that entire school district doesn't get that support. So we're trying to take a look at those sorts of issues and also trying to, to create some really unique initiatives to really be able to encourage a lot of entrepreneurial, you know, agriculture, you know, try to get a lot more people into the food processing business, you know, try to get people making cheese or making salamis or, you know, really figure out what we can do to get Michigan to, to be recognized as a food state. I mean, the same way that, you know, California has done or Vermont or even Wisconsin with their cheese. So we really are bringing together, you know, some very significant stakeholders in agriculture, in the food industry, um, and trying to get our heads together to figure out how can we pull everybody together and create a lot of jobs in the food industry. And I imagine that part of that is going to be bringing a voice to that whole that whole group of people as far as uh, organic foods and healthier foods. As, as opposed to just more mass-produced foods, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it isn't, you know, there is a lot of commodity agriculture, and there certainly is a place for, for you know, big farms and for what they can do. And, you know, but what's happened is that the whole, you know, the climate has changed. I mean, some of the statistics that we've been looking at on the Food Policy Council are that, you know, it's estimated today that between um, the next, well, really between now and, and, you know, 2030, really within the next 20 to 24 years, that we're going to lose 75% of the farms that are base, basically between 50 and 500 acres. Hmm. And they're just going to be gone. They can't compete any the longer. The small farms. The right? small family farmers. And so what's happened is that, you know, they really have had really two choices. They could really become like a huge commodity farm and just make a little bit of money trying to feed, you know, a lot of people. Or they could try to figure out how to be sort of a niche farmer and try to find some sort of, you know, micro, you know, need to fill. And those guys are struggling as well. So it's been very difficult for people at both ends. 
you know, below 50 acres, you're really sort of considered more of a hobby farm. And so most of the people on those farms have other incomes. There's other, you know, sources of revenue for the family and that are coming into the farm. Above 500 acres, it's a little different scale. I mean, it's more... It's, you know, it's more industrial in a lot of ways. Um, and so what we want to try to do is to encourage people to stay on the farms in those capacities. And so, you know, the governor actually just announced about uh, a week ago, I think it was, uh, an opportunity with Charter One Bank uh, where they're going to offer up to $200 million for low interest loans to really encourage the creation of jobs in the state. And so we want to figure out what we can do uh, to really funnel a lot of that towards food and, and get some people really excited about becoming entrepreneurial um, in the state with food. Okay. And what are some of the, you've talked about, there's a wide variety of people on the board. What are some of the groups of people that represent people on the Michigan Food Policy Council? What are some of the branches? If you um, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of governments uh, represented there. There's a lot of people from the, um, you know, child um, and human services. There's a lot of people there from uh, Michigan Department of Agriculture. Um, there's people there from uh, a lot of people there from Detroit. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot is obviously relative, but there's representatives from from each one of those um, MIFs, which is Michigan, uh, you know, Food and Farm Systems. Um, and so there's a lot either through the universities, um, but also even some of the unions are represented. You know, the grocery workers are represented, and so it's a very good diverse group. I mean, it isn't just all made up of sort of commodity farmers. It's not just people that are sort of advocating for organic everything. Um, and so it's a really good cross-section, I think, of, of agriculture and sort of the interest of food. And, and I mean, if you think about all of the groups that are represented, you know, I was actually brought on uh, when they first started talking to me to represent restaurants while I was still the managing partner of Zingerman's Deli. Um, and there's other people there that are representing sort of food processors. So Justin uh, Rashid from American Spoon uh, is also on it. So. Oh, okay. So there's, you know, it's a pretty good selection of people that are sort of in government and bureaucracy and other, you know, sort of more entrepreneurial and people representing unions. And so not only is it just sort of a good cross-section of um, of people in the food industry, but also just from different aspects of, of industry at whole. So you've got unions represented and, and entrepreneurs and some more of the sort of bureaucracy represented. So it's a great combination, which uh, many times creates a lot of heated discussions and oh, debates. Yeah. Uh -huh. So. Which makes it healthy. So would the Michigan Food Policy Council deal at all with, say, uh, a company wanting to start a large farm operation? Yeah, one of the things that we're trying to do is, is you know, when you go to start a new business, whatever it is, um, it, it seems like there's always lots of regulations and sort of hurdles that you have to get over. And it seems like in farming in particular that a lot of those regulations um, are sort of mysterious until you sort of happen upon them. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is is to create a much more streamlined process. So if you and I decided we wanted to get into, you know, becoming, you know, organic vegetable farmers, and, you know, mm -hmm. we wanted to go out and buy a farm, you know, that's fairly easy and straightforward in terms of what you can and can't do. But if all of a sudden we got this great idea that we wanted to, um, you know, open up a, um, a processing facility where we were going to provide a lot of great um, meat and poultry into Ann Arbor and, you know, the surrounding area. The regulations that come along with having a meat processing facility are pretty intense. Mm. Um, and where it gets really complicated is if you wanted to, let's say we were going to go open up a, um, 
uh, a cheese company. We wanted to start making all of our own cheese. And so we wanted to do, you know, on-farm processing of raw milk, great cheeses, whatever. Mm-hmm. Once you get into that, the regulations start to get pretty intense. So, mm-hmm. you know, the way that you can milk the cows, uh, how often um, the the room that they're made in needs to be cleaned. And a lot of times you don't realize what all the regulations are until you're very far into the process and maybe have spent a lot of money to make it happen. So one of the things we want to do is to have sort of one resource center where if you're interested in getting into this sort of aspect of, you know, fresh food from the farm, that you could go to one resource, log in, and it would give you sort of a checklist of all of the departments that you need to check in with. You know, there's the Department of um, Environmental Quality, the Michigan Department of Agriculture. And so what we want to do is to make sure that that's a very easy process. The hard part should be running the business, not getting, you know, all the paperwork done to be able Mm -hmm. to run the business. So I guess what I'm wondering also, do would you deal with a business that, well, I, I guess I think about some of the lar- really large farm operations, issues like pesticide, runoff of manure and polluting streams. Do you deal with any of those issues with some of the larger? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's agencies that are set up. I mean, the, you know, DEQ or the Department of Environmental Quality that does a lot of that sort of regulation. Yeah. And so what we want to do, though, is to make sure that that it's very easy for people to understand what those standards are, to understand what those regulations are before they get into business. Right. So like you're saying, you don't, you know, you, if you had the opportunity and the resources to go buy a really big farm, um, you wouldn't want to get surprised two years into business with a lawsuit because you were violating some sort of Clean Water Act or whatever. Right. So, so a lot of what we want to do is to make a lot of that very transparent so it's very easy to understand what you need to do, who you need to talk to. And then also a big part of the work that we're trying to do is to get those agencies to talk to each other uh, because sometimes in the past it's been very difficult because they all have sort of their own world that they live in mm-hmm. and and you know making it a little bit more complicated and cumbersome for the the people that want to get out there and really you know start farming mm-hmm. so you're you're making it easier for people who, who want to do say organic farming and for people who might have other ways of farming, you're making it easier for them to do right, in a sense. Exactly. Say, yeah. Exactly. And so a lot of it is really making sure that, you know, we're looking far into the future and thinking, you know, what do we want Michigan to be known for for its food? Um, you know, and so we really don't want it to be known for, you know, having destroyed the landscape and, and right. you know, <laughs> polluting the lakes and, and all of those sorts of things. So we really want to be able to set a lot of goals and, and standards for those things so that we can have a reputation that we can be proud of and that we we can still have land that our kids and grandkids can be farming. Right. Well, if you just tuned in, uh, this is Todd Wickstrom, who's talking about the Michigan Food Policy Council. And we're going to listen to a little bit of music now, just for a moment. Ali Farka Toure, the great musician of Mali, passed away earlier this week. He's a musician who got out of music temporarily in 1990 to tend to his rice farm in his native Timbuktu. So I'd like to listen to a little bit of his music. Just a moment here. This is WCBN.
We're listening to some Ali Farka Toure. He passed away uh, earlier this week, but his music is still with us. Musician from Mali, and that is a tune called La Drogue. That is from a collection called Red and Green, and if I read correctly, it's recordings from the 1980s by Ali Farka Toure. And that song, he's trying to convince kids to stop drinking alcohol. He says, it won't fill your stomach, it won't quench your thirst, and let's, let's do all we can do to stop drinking. So that's the message in that particular song. And this is Pandora's Lunchbox. This is Mike, and I'm here with Todd Wickstrom. And uh, we were just talking about the Food Policy Council, and now there, but there's something specific you're involved in, the Earthshine Farm, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Earthshine Farm is a, uh, a farm that is up uh, near Durand, and it was started several years ago by a, a couple, Frank and Laura K. Jones. And uh, we first found them while I was working with Heritage Foods. And, you know, when I, when I left Zingerman's, I started this new company called Heritage Foods USA. And the whole point of Heritage Foods USA was to really promote genetic diversity and increase revenues for small family farmers. And so what we did was focus on a lot of these rare breeds of turkeys and chickens and and pork and whatever um, and tried to really become food brokers for these farmers and help figure out for those guys how do you help the farmers um, compete in the national marketplace? I mean, it's very, very difficult. I mean, for a small family farm to try to, you know, go to restaurants or go to grocery stores or whatever, very complicated sort of process. And most farmers, you know, being a farmer is a full-time job. And so to try to be the farmer and the salesman and the marketing company and the distribution company and everything else, we just saw that there was this huge void. And, and so what we did was to really focus on on trying to promote and, and protect the work that they were doing. And so we would really just become the marketing arm for those farmers. 
And so um, Frank and Laura Kay approached us about a year ago, and, you know, we immediately fell in love with their chicken. I mean, it was fantastic. <laughs> and and so, you know, it was the only chicken that we knew of uh, that we could find in the country that was sort of an heirloom breed of chicken. I mean, it was an older breed of chicken uh, that wasn't built to grow fast in these warehouses. <laughs> right. and. And uh, it also was certified organic, um, so they it's sort of beyond organic, actually. I mean, they it is certified organic, but they also get all of their own grains in, and they grind it fresh on the farm mm. to make sure the birds are getting the most nutrients, and and it's completely pasture raised. Um, I mean, it's 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 not like the problem with a lot of the the food industry today has a lot of the labeling issues and, and a lot of what's happening is that people are just confused. They don't know what organic means. They don't know what free range means, you know, grass fed. What is that? And it's now it's natural and it's no hormones and no antibiotics. And, and so, you know, there is really no definition of some of those things. I mean, there are organic regulations if you want to be certified by different agencies. Um, but, in terms of free range, the USDA describes free range as animals that have access to pasture. So access mm. is fairly, you know, vague. Yeah. And so what there's, I mean, they've got, they, a, they've got a hall pass to yeah, pasture. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and so what has happened is that you know a lot of people are just playing on the semantics. And so you go into the grocery store and you'll see things that are labeled as organic or free range. And so you know typically when farmers have approached us at Heritage Foods, we've been sort of cynical also because we don't know what you know, where the farmer is coming from. And so I went out and visited Frank and Laura Kay about uh, a year ago, actually, last January. And when I went out on their farm, I was just blown away with, you know, that the chickens literally live outside. I mean, they're out, wow. you know, playing around in the pasture. And, and so it's certified organic. It's a great uh, breed of chicken, and they take care of it really well by letting it grow up on pasture. But one of the things that really makes it unique um, is that they do the processing on the farm. And so... When they do the processing, they use a method that you'll start to hear more and more about as the, as years go on, but it's uh, the, it's called air chilling. And mm. the reason that that's unique is that 99% of all the chickens and, and poultry or whatever that's processed in this country all goes into these huge, like, ice baths. And, you know, so imagine a big swimming pool, pool full of floating mm. chicken carcasses. Um, and, I mean, that's literally what it is. I mean, they, the industry sort of term for that mess that they're floating around in is fecal soup. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it's, a, you know, it's very vivid and graphic and, and makes you not want to have water-chilled chickens anymore. And so what they've done is created a, a facility on their farm where they can do the processing that is now they're doing it in this very traditional European way where it's just air-chilled. It's cooled down with cold air that's forced over the chickens and blown over them. And so that keeps it from getting, it's a much healthier bird. And so not only is is it not, you know, getting cross-contaminated with the other birds mm. and the other stuff that happens to be in that water? But they um, they also are able to um, to basically lock in the flavor. I mean, so it's really it's instead of leaching out all the flavor, it's really concentrated. So imagine if you went to the grocery store or to the farmers market and you bought, you know, a wonderful thing of let's say it's a nice head of organic broccoli, you know, raised with a lot of care by these farmers and it's beautiful and well cultivated and harvested just at the peak of its flavor and then you take it home and throw it in a pot of boiling water you're going to wash out all the flavor well it's right. the same thing that's happening with all the poultry yeah. so they've done a really good job of of really you know keeping the high road and and so what we're trying to do with them is to really figure out how can we create um a national company 
but that is made with local products. So if you can find an Earthshine chicken, let's say, in Atlanta, that mm-hmm. when you go into the grocery store in Atlanta, that you would know that that Earthshine chicken was from a local farm. So we want to really create some sort of national brand, but all using local farms wherever we oh, happen okay. to be. So you, in Atlanta, you buy an Earthshine chicken from um, Georgia. Yep. In Michigan, you buy an Earthshine chicken from Durand, which exactly. the place just to, the Durand is near Flint, right? It is. It's about in between Flint and Lansing. Okay. Yeah, but that's the idea. And the, the, the idea being, you know, when we started with Heritage Foods, we were really focused on, on working with small family farmers and, and have really now gotten recently mostly into pork and shipping pork from Kansas and Missouri to New York and San Francisco. And I think right now we're in about 250 restaurants across the country. But what we really wanted to do, you know, with me especially living in Michigan and being on the Michigan Food Policy Council, really wanted to focus on how do we take that same sort of work but really get it focused here. So we want to start working with them to raise those chickens here and, and start focusing on fabulous products that we can uh, source and manufacture or process and distribute all within the state. Hmm. And so a lot of times, you know, the, the you hear about local food and sort of this big push to, to promote local food. But, you know, you don't all the time hear about the high standards. I mean, a lot of times it's, well, this is local, so I better get this, but uh-huh. it isn't necessarily advocating the highest standards. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do with our new company is is we really want to focus on, on creating sustainable local food communities um, that practice the highest standards of production, whatever it is. And so our, what we don't want to have is is uh, what we call, we don't want any no, yeah, buts. And so we mm-hmm. don't want to say, yeah, it's organic, but it's raised in a barn. Or, yeah, it's it's free range, but it's a really bad, you know, whatever those conditions are. We don't want to have any sort of veto votes. Right. So we want to have very high standards and very local production. But the other thing and the thing that really makes it different and unique is that we want to figure out how to make these foods affordable. And so the that's that's a, that's a big one actually. Well, it is a big one. It's what really makes what we're doing now different and unique from Heritage Foods. I mean, what it isn't really that inspiring to me to you know figure out how do you create niche markets to sell food to rich people. <laughs> uh, it's not that complicated. I mean, right. Rich people have a lot of money, and if the story is compelling, they'll buy it. Right. But we want to be able to have these foods that that are raised according to the highest production and the highest standards. We believe that those foods should be accessible to everybody. You know, so we want to really work on. On trying to get these foods to the you know to the urban poor, those that are on lower incomes, and how right. do you do that? I don't know. I mean, we're going to figure <laughs> that out as we go. But the goal is is that we want to make a difference with the people that need it the most. So we really want to figure out how do you get into the school districts and into the inner cities. And I mean, there's as many rural poor, I think, sometimes more than there are urban poor. Uh-huh. But we don't want to have these foods just be extremely expensive. I mean, we want to make sure that. Um, we don't want to send the message that if you can't shop at Whole Foods that you're a second-class citizen. Right. So we really want to do everything that we can to make sure that these foods are available, whether they're through farmer's markets or direct to consumers or whatever we need to do. We really want to work with uh, the farms and get access of those foods that are raised locally into the cities to the people that need them the most. So are you trying to do that through Earthshine Farm then? Yeah, through we want one, to start one with... Farm. Yeah, Earthshine Farm. Well, Earthshine is actually a great term. Earthshine was a, a term that was coined by, I believe, Anne-Marie Lindbergh. At least she wrote a book that's called Earthshine. Um, and it is this term that is sort of used to describe when the astronauts were taking off and they were going into space uh, when they were 
getting prepared for their journey, they were all prepared for sort of the weightlessness and how beautiful and amazing the space and the the solar system and the you know everything about you know the universe around us would be. What they weren't prepared for was when they turned around and looked back, how beautiful the Earth was uh-huh. and how deep blue and deep green and how you know beautiful the continents were. And so Earthshine really talks a lot about the glow of the Earth. Um, and so for us, it really is the embodiment of sort of, you know, great agriculture and, you know, very, uh, you know, right practices and everything else. So it's just a great term to sort of embody everything that we want to, to be known for. Terrific. Well, Todd, thank you so much for uh, coming to Pandora's Lunchbox. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So, uh, Todd Wickstrom, working with Earthshine Farm in Durand, Michigan, which is uh, about an an hour's drive about from Flint, hour you north. said? Yep. About an hour's drive from Flint. And it's uh, trying to take one farm with, with something you really like, the chicken there, and make it available to everybody. That's your goal. That's right? the plan. Yeah. And thank you so much for tuning in. Coming up in just a minute, our wolf will help you to face the music. He's here getting ready to help you do that. And want to take a moment again to uh, step back to Ali Farka Toure, the musician from Mali who passed away this week. In 1990, he abandoned music in order to tend to his rice farm in his native Timbuktu, and he had a very successful album with Rai Cooter called Talking Timbuktu, which won a Grammy. But in spite of that, this is from the worldmusiccentral.org website, I'd like to let you know. Despite the success of Talking Timbuktu, he wasn't willing to leave his rice farm in Mali to record an album. Producer Nick Gold had to set up the equipment in an abandoned brick hall in Nyafunke, Mali, using portable equipment and gasoline generators to compensate for the fact that Touré's hometown has no power lines. The crew had to wait until Farka Touré was done with his chores and ready to play the guitar. And Ali Fakaturi said, We were in the middle of the landscape which inspired the music, and that in turn inspired myself and the musicians. In the West, perhaps this music is just entertainment, and I don't expect people to understand. Wow. Ali Farkature. And we're going to hear a little bit from that album, as a matter of fact. Uh, this is... Hold on a second. Let me just make sure... This is not that album, but this is an album by Ali Farkature. Nonetheless, this is called Radio Mali, and we're going to hear a tune called Yer Mali Gakoyoyo. And you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back Thursday at 6.30. Arwolf in just a moment. <laughs> 